everyone out there who is listening. Welcome to Open Conversations, the podcast of Orleans Public Education Network, where we speak with community about issues that are impacting equity and justice in education. Today, we are joined by Megan Stroll, who is a navigator at N Navigators. Um, she was also recently a fellow in our um, policy education course on where she explored issues around trauma in schools. So thank you, Megan, for joining us. Um, and please uh, introduce yourself to the audience and let's get started. Yeah, thanks, Nalia. It's really nice to finally have this conversation with you after almost a year in the fellowship. Um, I really learned a lot about not only my project, but also how you know, policy is kind of created and what different factors are in play. And so I'm really happy to kind of apply that to this conversation. Um, I, like you said, I work for a nonprofit located here in New Orleans called Ed Navigator. And as a navigator, I support families and all things education. So I work with families who have students at the pre-K level. I work with middle school students, high school students, college students, even adult learners. And so I have the, 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 like I, the position I, I occupy allows me to kind of see a lot of different ways that families interact with school systems and different institutions that affect their students learning and just general outcomes and so um i really yeah appreciate that perspective and before joining a navigator i was a high school chemistry teacher jefferson parish on the west bank for a long time i also have some experience working in orleans and working as an assistant principal so i spent about 10 years in schools and um really excited to talk today about how our schools are or are not supporting all of our students. Thank you for that. Thank you. I'm actually excited about this conversation too. Um, you and I have spoken before about, you know, this issue of like, um, whether it's trauma-informed practice or, um, you know, what's happening with students um, who have experienced traumatic events in school, because we all know that like the context around the child impacts their educational experience and their outcomes. And um, in an organization down here, the Institute for Women and Ethnic Studies has done a lot of work, um, of, you know, studying this and trying to understand the situation in New Orleans. Um, but at the same time, though, um, a lot of parents or just the average community member may not understand um, how these things intersect. So I'm excited that you took a deep dive into this. And um, so, so let's get started talking about it. Like why trauma in schools? What was it about that particular topic that interests you to explore? Yeah, thank you for introducing that. Um, so like I said, I worked in schools for 10 years and this was not a part of my education as a teacher, unfortunately. And there's probably a lot of reasons that led to that, but I know that there are other teachers like me who were not necessarily trained, were not necessarily aware of things that impact our students really greatly, right? And um, while there are people that have been thinking about this for a long time, it's not even visible enough, I think, in the, edu in the educator space, right? So we as educators don't always know how to identify students who might have experienced trauma. We don't always know what supports are necessary for those students to be successful. And if at the educator level, we don't know about it, it just worries you know, me about who else is not like paying enough attention to this. And, and so childhood trauma, we know, uh, there's a lot of studies like you mentioned uh, with IWES, there are a lot of studies that show our students here in New Orleans have a lot of experiences with events that could be traumatic. So 
you know, they, they learn from that study that you mentioned that our students have rates of PTSD nearly four times the national average. And we have a high percentage of students who have witnessed, you know, a violent experience. Um, and even, I think 54% of students had had someone close to them murdered. So our students are interacting with a world that can be challenging. And at the same time, our students are beautiful, wonderful humans who have really rich lives that are not fully defined by traumatic experiences, but that, those have impacts. And I think, you know, there's data that shows that these adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, like witnessing violence, like having, you know, some traumatic events in your home, that they are more common for, for children who are living uh, to at 200% with an income less than 200% of the federal uh, poverty level. And mm -hmm. here in New Orleans, 60% of our black residents live at that income level compared with about 25% of our white population. And so we were seeing like a disproportionate effect on our black and brown students when it comes to childhood trauma. And so I think it's, it's like most of our students in our public schools are black and brown and low income. And most of our students are, or many of our students are not attending A and B rated schools, right? And so, and demographics change across those like school ratings. So there is this disproportionate effect and I think there needs to be like more work and more attention paid to this, to our students' well-being because it's not, it's a pervasive issue in our school system. And so I think, for me personally, um, I'm fortunate to have worked on my Ed Navigator team with mental health, like trained specialists or counselors. Yeah. And it was about a year ago that we did a, a professional development session as a team on childhood trauma. Because while we're not all clinicians and we're not going to, you know, diagnose a student with PTSD, uh, we work with students and families to help connect them to the resources that they need so that they can be successful. And if we are not aware of that as, as navigators, if we're not, you know, if we don't have an understanding of the pathways between school and, you know, a, a provider or what supports a, a student could be eligible for in their school, then we're not maximizing our ability to help that family. So I wanted, I, I realized it was kind of a gap area for me, um, but it's such a, it's an issue that, I think everybody should know about, right? Um, whether they're a parent or a community leader or a teacher or a navigator. And so I wanted to spend time learning more about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for breaking down that, how this issue doesn't impact all student groups equally, um, but also because of the inequitable setup of our school system, it then, it has a potential to um, concentrate um, trauma in certain school buildings, right? Um, and that requires additional resources to be able to serve the needs of young people and their families, right? Because this is, children are not experiencing these things in isolation, but it is often the schools that are under-resourced that have a larger concentration of students that need more resources, thereby further compounding the inequity and potentially the trauma. I mean, poverty is a, is a traumatic thing to experience on its own, right? Um, everything could be good at home, loving family, um, strong roots, strong community ties, and a great support system, but not having the 
resources that you need to take care of your basic needs can be traumatic <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, um, despite even with all of those um, protective factors in place. And we know that you know, New Orleans, um, well, Louisiana is a poor state um, and there's a high levels of poverty across the state, um, particularly in New Orleans and that, and that poverty is, and because of you know, racial capitalism and segregation, that poverty is concentrated among specific ethnic and racial groups. So it's just like issue on top of issue on top of issue that needs to be unpacked. And there are folks that are focused specifically on the impact um, of trauma. Can you talk a little bit about um, who some of these groups are and what they're finding? Yeah, um, so IOS, you've already mentioned, is an organization that has um, been studying childhood trauma here in New Orleans and um, they are like a really important player. And Another uh, organization is the Child and Youth Planning Board. This is actually an organization that has recently uh, produced a report called Called to Care. They were called on, to, they were called to create this, this report to do this study to provide recommendations by the New Orleans City Council back in 2018. And their report you know, was published in January of 2020. So, it's it's thorough it's got a lot of information it's really helpful yeah but it's also really new and then of course mardi gras happened and then covid really shut down our city so you know that it, it's kind of sat for as far as i can tell since it was published but they they that report it, it's lengthy and but it's it is it is worth reviewing and and one of my recommendations that we'll talk about is just making sure that that gets reviewed right all of that hard work that was done needs to be used mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know there are other there are other groups um that have started like pilot programs in in the years past so we had uh in 2015 i believe the new orleans department of health launched the trauma-informed schools learning collaborative where five schools were able to to participate and you know learn about best practices for trauma-informed creating trauma-informed schools um and then we had the safe schools nola that pilot or study i guess um start this past school year so uh you know tulane university is working on research with that uh, it's funded by the department of justice like you you have different like kind of players at um helping fund some of the these projects but we also have you know organizations like the new orleans youth alliance that are you know helping you know helping us like kind of reimagine what our youth experience is here in new orleans um and then the ace initiative the louisiana ace initiative is also um some policy that i'll talk about uh, to kind of help kind of later in our talk to kind of help understand the landscape so Lots of people doing the work, um, and I keep learning about more. The more and more that I that I like, dig into this, and again, like these are the experts, right? And like if people are trying to learn more, mm -hmm. these are the places that they should go first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. So I appreciate you know, from the outside looking in, it can often be perceived that Louisiana or New Orleans is um, you know behind the curve. You know, usually when like studies go out or like rankings go out out of 50 states you know louisiana is like 48 49 50 um education or whatever and but you know when you're here in the community in the people you realize that there are a lot of people that are spending 
I mean, who are really great at what they do, who are spending a lot of time tackling these issues. Um, and so it really is important to highlight these folks because no one is here just sitting on their hands, um, twiddling their thumbs, trying to figure out what to do. There's a lot of social scientists um, and policymakers who are really trying to tackle some of Louisiana's biggest issues, especially when it's coming to their young people for a variety of reasons, right? Um, some of us want some of us, our goal is that our young people grow up to be free and liberated adults. Some of us want people to grow up to be healthy workers. <laughs> Everybody has their different reasons for wanting to focus on our young people, but there are quite a few organizations and groups that are doing just that. So you talked about, um, you know, a lot of groups, a lot of policies um, that are being created or pilot programs that are being initiated what does the policy landscape kind of look like for this? Um, what, what are people saying, you know, on the state level or even on the local level about what we should be doing around trauma in schools or trauma amongst our children? Yeah, so one thing that I think is kind of interesting um, is that most of the, or all of the policy that I'm highlighting today is 2015 or later. So there, there may be older policy than that, but it, this is like a fairly new, policy landscape, mm -hmm. even on the national stage. So uh, I'll, I'll spend just like a minute or so on the national level, because I think that kind of sets the stage also for the, for the state and local level. In 2015, we had the Every Student Succeed Act, or ESSA. I will not profess to be an expert on the entire legislation because it is meaty, but there is language in that act that allows for funding to be used to support students with behavioral needs, to train teachers in behavioral awareness, and to implement school-based behavioral health services. And what's a little bit different about this is that now this can be used for Title I, with Title I funding, which as you know, many listeners may or may not know, Title I funding is often, uh, has like certain parameters for how it can be used, and you find Title I funding at lower income schools. So the, you know, this is designed to support students who may have more needs, and now that funding can actually be used for behavioral needs. Now how that connects to the state level, it, it, I haven't seen a, a huge connection yet. Um, so my, I was asking myself, I was like, well, okay, how is Louisiana using this funding? And are they using any of this federal funding for support for students and their behavioral needs, many of which might have experienced trauma? There could be more out there, but all I could find was a statement saying um, that beginning in fall 2017, the Louisiana Department of Education would use ESSA funding or in response to ESSA funding would provide training and technical assistance on discipline policies. And there was some, there was a list of discipline policies in that statement and it included trauma-informed approaches and trauma-specific interventions. So, okay, the state of, you know, the State Department of Education is, is acknowledging this, is saying that they're could be a plan for this. So then my next question was like, okay, so how is this being executed? And I couldn't find much. Uh, there was a 2021 school system planning guide produced by the Louisiana Department of Education pushed out to districts. There's not one mention of trauma. There's not one mention of trauma-specific interventions or trauma-informed approaches. And so it leads me to believe or, or ask the question, you know, is this funding being being used, right? And is anybody actually making it a priority to funnel some money into the support of students with behavioral needs? So I think, you know, national Ooh. policy is is dense, um, but making sure that we're using that wisely as a state, uh, I think is important. 
On the state level, I think it's also important to highlight the Louisiana ACE initiative, which I already mentioned, that launched in 2015. Uh, and as a reminder, the ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and these are indicators that can be used to determine whether or not a student has experienced trauma or a child has experienced trauma. And basically what they created was a program to train people on ACE. And then these people could become ACE educators and spread the word about ACE and childhood trauma and the effects on the brain and how that might you know, impact a student's experience in school and how to better support those students in school. And uh, most, the most recent data I could get was that 10,000 people have participated in their training sessions, which, you know, sounds... Seems encouraging. Seems encouraging, but you know, questions I have, it's like, where where are those ACE educators, you know, presenting? Where like I, I said, I worked in schools for 10 years, never got one, right? Um, I, I actually got to participate in one, but in grad school, kind of randomly in a evening seminar. You know, so I think like how do we make sure that we're concentrating those those educators if we think that that's an effective way to use funding or an effective way to use our time and resources. How are we making sure that those those ACE educators are getting into the schools that need it the most, right? How do we make sure that's the fabric of schools where those students could benefit most? Um, another kind of interesting state policy that I found was SB 107 Act 122. And this, this allowed for PTSD to be added to the list of compensable presumptions under workers' comp for Louisiana first responders. If anybody out there is wondering what a compensable presumption is, sure, a lot I was too. <laughs> <laughs> workers' comp law is not necessarily friendly to like the layperson, but it essentially is saying that if somebody, if a first responder in Louisiana, like a fireman or a police officer uh, or a paramedic, if he or she or they claims to have PTSD from work on the job, then they could get compensation from that through workers' comp. And basically it's a sign that like we care about the mental health of our first responders. And it even, even part of the language of, of the act of like the reasoning for the act was like, we need to detect this early in our first responders so that we can support them. And so I think this is like an interesting act because while it's about adults, not children, if we're, if we care about adults mental health and we want to detect PTSD, which could be related to a traumatic events, why not do that for kids? So at this point, there's this law here for workers' comp and for adults, but we don't have that same kind of legislation or policy for kids. Okay. Um, so I think there's a big gap kind of on the state level. Um, kind of to round out the policy landscape that I've kind of encountered so far, I already mentioned that the New Orleans City Council in 2018 called for this report to be written about childhood trauma here in New Orleans. That has happened. Um, the next steps have not necessarily been outlined, but that was a you know an important moment right to make sure that this was a priority in the city of New Orleans. Um, you also have we also have a school um, called the Center for Resilience. It launched in 2015. It was originally some people might know it as a therapeutic day school. That was its original name, and it is serving students um, who have behavioral like severe behavioral challenges who need another setting um, and need more like services during the school day. And their purpose is to like bring those students into their, their school environment, give them the supports that they need. And when they're ready to go back to a traditional setting, help that transition happen so that students aren't like stalled because of 
whatever, you know, situation they're in, whatever challenges they're facing. So I think that this is showing like one, a need for it, right? Like this school was created because there was a need for students to have a, a place outside of a traditional setting um, in their school day to get the supports that they need. And so I think it's, it's like, making progress, right? Like there's something that is supporting these students uh, individually or like on purpose. It's currently serving about a hundred students, right? And so it's not, mm-hmm. it's not serving all the students that need that in, in New Orleans. So I think what I'm kind of seeing from my like analysis of the, the, the policy landscape is that there are, there are some policies in place that say, hey, we should pay attention to this. We should care about this. But there's a large gap between execution of services for families setting a citywide or a, a state vision for experience trauma and it's not because there aren't other policies like this there there are statewide policies for literacy screening there are statewide policies for response to intervention for students with learning disabilities so it's not like an impossible you know unimaginable thing to do i don't think um, but it doesn't exist currently yeah, you. Thank you for that rundown. You um, you talked about a lot here, and it's good for folks to have um, an idea of the landscape, what's been done um, in the last five years or so. As you were speaking, um, it made me think about a few things. One is that I said before, and I stand by it, that there are a lot of people in Louisiana that are thinking about these issues and are trying to like mobilize and galvanize people to think about them. Um, you know, Louisiana is a very data-driven state. They like to study things um, and um, incorporate that data into their practice. But then they run up against the limitations of the system or what I consider to be the limitations of the system. Like when you talked about you have your, your, your federal policy coming through ESSA. Um, and then that being tied to Title I funds. Now we know, you work in the school, I worked in the school that received Title Funds, you know that Title I covers a lot of things that when you go to school, that money kind of ends up in a general bucket <laughs> and it may not fund all the things that Title I is supposed to fund. You know, mm-hmm. Title I is supposed to fund parent engagement in schools and how many schools they'll take that Title I money and create parent-teacher organizations or, you know, those kinds of things. So there's already issues around, like, the money comes, how does it get distributed to the schools, and then what do the individual schools do with that money? And oftentimes what they do is they pool resources to fill other gaps. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no, you know, guarantee that that money will be used for that. But then you come to the state, and I think this is important for the audience to know, and the DOE will tell you this, they don't tell districts what to do. They, um, they make recommendations, and they support school districts or superintendents or teachers or what have you coming together to, you know, study um, some, of the, some of the issues and make recommendations. So there are a lot of reports. Um, There are a lot of commissions, um, and some of those reports and commissions make their way through the policy process and become bills and eventually policy. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of activity on that level of adults coming together in a room and trying to tease these things out. But then 
you know, the, the, the DOE doesn't make school districts do anything. They incentivize their participation, but they don't make you do that. They don't make you prioritize that in your district. Um, and so then it really comes down to then what's happening on the, the more local level. And we're gonna talk specifically about New Orleans, but we know that New Orleans doesn't have one school district. <laughs> New Orleans has like 70 school districts. <laughs> Never boring here, no. Right? And so it's, it's a further more of a, of a fragmentation of um, uh, priorities um, and right, really like priorities. And I don't think that there's any teacher or school leader that says it doesn't matter. I don't care about my kids being traumatized or their families going through traumatic experiences, but it just may not be on their high priority list um, to, to, to tackle that. Additionally, the ways that we think about trauma, we're automatically thinking medical, right? I'm gonna have to bring in some kind of professional with that kind of a background to be able to serve students. Um, and I would like to see the conversation expand to what kinds of school environments do we need to set up so that even if you're not directly addressing um, particular um, uh, students and their needs, but in the general sense, we're creating an environment here that at the very least doesn't exacerbate or recreate trauma. You mentioned the Center for Resilience, which was formerly known as the Therapeutic Day School. I think it's wonderful, right, that students can come out of a setting, get the support that they individually need, and go back. But then what happens if the, sometimes the school environment is a traumatic setup? Right. And it has exacerbated or exaggerated that young person's issue. Um, and so I think that we need to have a make trauma a part of our a larger um, conversation about the entire world of the child and not just how they're responding to an event um, to make sure that we're not create we're not trying to cure or address trauma in a traumatic setting, which yeah. sometimes schools can be. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, I think something that I've found in my work, like when, when I think about the center for resilience, they, they, I, you know, I think they do as best they can to make the referral process effective, but uh, a family or maybe a school that has a student who might, you know, benefit from the center for resilience, they've got to know that the center for resilience exists. They've got to like, do the, the, they've got to go through the, the paperwork, the referral process, which, you know, that, that's understandable to have a referral process. Right. They've got to go through that and then, you know, make that transition and make it all work. Right. And then there's, they have, they're, they're working, there's some kind of complicated ways they, they do funding and things like that. That's kind of beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's not simple. Okay. Mm -hmm. To like make that happen. And I think what's unfortunate and I see this a lot in my work is that parents just, they, they, they shouldn't have to be lucky to like find out about a resource. Right. They shouldn't have to like, it's often like, I found the needle in the haystack. I'm so glad that I found this resource or I'm so glad that I got connected to X, Y, or Z provider or found this school program. And it shouldn't be like that, right? Where like you have to, as a parent, you know, hope that like you find something, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that making it more visible, making it more aware, making people more aware of it is important. And I think, I think we talked about this in our fellowship, the curb cut analogy. I think mm -hmm. that came up with one of our panelists. 
I was on a webinar yesterday about colleges and, and the disruption that COVID has caused in higher ed. And this came up again, right? That for people who, you know, maybe hadn't heard it, I hadn't heard it until, you know, recently, but, you know, curb cuts are, are useful for people who are in wheelchairs to be able to, you know, travel on a sidewalk, to get up and down a sidewalk, but they're also really useful for other people, right? I'm moving my dishwasher on a dolly. I can use the curb cut. I'm hurt Have for- a baby in a stroller. I'm in a stroller, a yeah. Right. And, I, and I think that's what, that's something too that maybe not everybody realizes, right? That like a trauma-informed school, a tra like trauma-informed practices are not just good for the students who experience trauma because right. all of our students need a safe place to go to school. All of our students want to feel, you know, like they can trust their- their school staff, all of our students can benefit from peer support and collaboration and feeling empowered. And, and while we need to make sure that our students who have experienced trauma are getting the services that they need and we need to prioritize that, this is not, this is like a general good, right? right. To, to, to turn our attention this way. And I, I wonder sometimes if that's some of the, the hesitation to learn more or, or, you know, oh, I'm not sure if like, that's where we need to spend our time or, I don't know if we can solve this problem. This is actually like kind of to your point, like something that needs to be woven into the fabric of schools mm -hmm. so that the kids that need it most can benefit, but everybody, you know, we can create more equitable, safe environments for all of our kids. And so I don't that this is devoted to, right? Like this project and this policy, these policy recommendations are devoted to, but it's, it's, it's just kind of like a win-win if we can make sure that our schools are set up to, to help all students succeed. Right. And to your earlier point, like when you broke down like the demographics of the public school population, it's, first of all, the public school population is like, I'm being conservative here, like 85% Black, right? <laughs> and it's probably just as probably what, 60 to 75% low income. And if you just look at... Um, Again, the the trauma that is associated with not having, an, you know, the an abundance of resources so that you can thrive, and you are creating environments just to address that. That pretty much hits every kid, anyways. It hits every school, anyways. So every school, and it's not to say that every child in New Orleans or every Black child in New Orleans is traumatized. It's not to suggest that at all. But the numbers are pretty high down here, right? Um, and the studies and the, and the data demonstrates that. And so we can't even, we can't approach this as a one-off, right? Oh, like little Tommy, we're going to make sure that he has his, you know, what he, his intervention every couple of weeks. Like, no, actually you need to create, you actually probably have a school of Tommies on some level and you really need to create environments so that children can thrive and um but not based on a diagnosis just based on what children need what young people need um, um to thrive this also makes me think about when we're talking about expanding the conversation um is i wonder and this is a wondering but i wonder what the response would be if people understood on the school level, if they understood better how trauma informs academic outcomes, because that seems to be their focus, right? We're going to put all of our attention on making sure that kids are learning their learning targets and that they are prepared for this state exam at the end of the year, which determines way more than it should determine for a school. But, you know, I remember um, there's a, um, an institute that um, brings mindfulness into schools. 
and I forgot the name of it. I have to uh, look it up, but they were doing something in Baltimore. And in the article, the guy said, you know, we have to ask ourselves, not if students can learn, because of course they can, but are they showing up to school ready to learn? Are their minds and hearts and bodies receptive and open to the learning that's going to take place that day? You have to address that before you start throwing materials in their face and expecting them to be on task and all this other kind of stuff. And so I would love to see more of a connection being made. Again, we talked about this in our policy fellowship that we care on a human level that kids are okay. But some, but when you're talking about policy, it's not always about that. It could be, you have to be able to speak to your audience. Some people care about the numbers, right? How much is this gonna cost or how much is this going to save? Um, and some people just really just care about the academic outcomes. And I would love to see more work around connecting um, the impact of trauma on the education outcomes because a lot of folks that are hyper-focused on education outcomes are the ones that are shaping policy and diverting where funding is going. So there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, this is a, it's not, there's not like a simple solution. There's not, right. but but I think something you made me think about and, I, and you know, you you pushed me as I was kind of building this this policy brief to think about not just like what are kids coming into school with, but how are they, being impacted by their schools, mm-hmm. by their school systems, you know, and as a, as a former teacher here, I, I, teachers love kids, right? Like they're, they're trying to do their best and there are a lot of priorities that teachers and leaders are trying to juggle, right? And a lot of those, like you, you already mentioned, are academic outcomes and there's accountability at the state level for that and there's a lot of pressure, right, to meet those, meet those demands and, you know, you can, you, you, you spend time on the things that you think are most important or that feel most urgent. And I think we have to do a better job of helping make those connections so that people feel like this is urgent and this is really important. And you might not see the outcomes tomorrow, but like this is worth continuing, you know, to support. And, and I think what also kind of makes it difficult is, you know, like let's take discipline policies you know, for an example as how it relates to this, right? We, there, there's evidence that, you know, students who have experienced trauma are excluded from valuable instructional time more than their peers who have not. And that, you know, that can then result to being involved in juvenile justice system or, you know, further things that take you out of school, right? And in, you know, the, the behaviors that might come along with trauma or PTSD can be you know, seen as just discipline infractions that you're just not complying, right? And, you know, I've worked at a school that has, you know, that's attempting to like create restorative justice programs. And like, that's, it's hard to like shift away from that traditional discipline policy. And even I think schools are trying to do it. It's still really hard because it's not, it's so integrated into the entire school experience. And so, you know, I think I I understand some of the like hesitation to pull, to, to, to dismantle that. But I think you know, and I think especially in our climate right now, there's a lot of conversation about reimagining what school is, dismantling systems of oppression, and those happen in our school. And, you know, I, I think, I think you, you might know the phrase that I'm about to, that I'm thinking in my head, but like the, the most common infractions, there was a study done in New Orleans schools from 2001 to 2015. So we have quite a bit of data, you know, kind of pre-Katrina, post-Katrina reform. It's got a lot, it's got a lot of time in there. 
the most common infractions that have led to suspensions in New Orleans schools. Let me is guess. The, can you guess it? Willful disobedience? Yes, yes. And for like listeners out there, if you've ever gotten a referral, you know, from your kid's school that has willful disobedience on it, it's a very commonly used um, behavior. I, I personally have a lot of issues with it because it's kind of a catch-all. Right, it's a catch-all. And it's very, I think for me, it's not, it's kind of like disrespect for authority. Like, I, mm-hmm. it's just like, mm, you know, there's more to it um, than a kid just being non-compliant. But like, that is not necessarily uh, a category that that deals with like safety, right? Suspensions are typically, you know, designed to, to be used for for behaviors that are not safe, right? That are like endangering other students, maybe a fight, right? But this study, the number one most common infraction was, was willful disobedience. Number two was habitually violates a rule. Number three was fights in school. So that kind of makes sense. And then number four was disrespects authority. So you have these, we don't know what all of those infractions like came from, right? I'm not going to pretend to say that they were all related to trauma. It could have been a student being non-compliant, right? We know that that happens, but you know, you have to kind of like upend your systems if you're going to address the needs of students who have been traumatized, because if they're continually just getting willful disobedience, willful disobedience, you're disrespecting authority and not actually getting the like supports they need, then they're not, you know, to your point earlier, the, the effects are just compounding and they're not going to have the most positive experience in school. So I think that, that it's just, it's in order to like make changes, schools really have to be serious and intentional about their priorities and have to like, step back from maybe traditional ways of doing things. Right. And I mean, even that, yeah. Even that language, like, first of all, we talk about the school to prison pipeline, but we fail to wreck that. And that's a very apt um, description, but sometimes there is no pipeline. Sometimes school is prison. Sometimes it operates like a prison, willful disobedience, disrespecting authority and our um, response in us using punishment as a response. That's our go-to, right? You don't do something I want you to do. Uh, Well, one, like, you know, we put it out there as if, you know, respect is only one way, right? It's from, so we practice a lot of adultism, um, you know, across the board. I am an authority figure and you, a child who has no authority or respect or, you know, or isn't um, entitled to any of those things, you have to do what I say. So, and if you don't, then I get to punish you. Yeah. And we, first of all, that's a very violent way of setting up relationships with anybody. Um, But then that, and then we in turn teach children this, right? Like they can establish themselves as an authority some way and then like, verbally or physically beat someone up if that person, um, that other classmate or a younger classmate or a sibling or whatever doesn't comply. So we have have a culture that, um, we have a culture that centers and honors and incentivizes these kinds of traumatic relationships. And then we're like, oh my God, I don't understand why the kid is not, why the kid is behaving this way, or I don't understand why the school is operating this way. Um, We have to divest from the punishment paradigm, which is hard because we all grew up in it, right? And I mean, I've been in the classroom before. You have, like you said, you have all sorts of pressures that are on you. Um, 
and you just want the the child to quote unquote behave so that you can get through the lesson but getting through the lesson doesn't mean that the child is learning and so we have to we really have to reimagine the whole thing um because the system as it is set up it's only going to be beneficial to a certain type of student but a lot of students kind of get crushed um in the way that it's set up and it's you know if if school is kind of like a microcosm for life as an adult is are those the kind of relationships that we want adults to be setting up with each other yeah is this how we want adults to be operating with each other we complain about it at work right my boss said this to me and they threatened me with firing and but where does that come from it comes from how we set these relationships up in childhood um so it's a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's we quite can, a lot we could talk for a long time about this. we could we could so what um, are some of your recommendations um, to address some of the issues that were raised in this um, research that you've done? So kind of some different levels. I think, you know, at, to my knowledge, uh, again, I could have missed this in my research, but we don't have a state task force yet on childhood trauma in Louisiana. Like, as you've already mentioned, as we've already kind of talked about some of the statistics, we have a lot of students living in poverty, which is, you know, step one in, 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 in challenges and possibly, you know, having some traumatic experiences. And so I think that we have this call to care report, which is New Orleans specific, right? But it is a great starting point for review. And there is some guidance from other like policy on the national level. Um, there was one, for example, I think called the Support uh, for Patients and Care Act, the Support for Patients and Community Act. And it kind of laid out some methods for designing a task force, for uh, understanding and identifying the effects of childhood trauma. Theirs was specifically in response to substance abuse, so children who've gotten traumatized by that. Uh, but that, you know, we could potentially do that here in Louisiana. So I think that's one kind of like state level recommendation. I think there's also an opportunity, and I know, you know, we kind of finished our last conversation around some issues that we've seen in schools, right? And we, you know, that's not, it's a, it's a system that, that has wonderful people working in it that sometimes can't do all the wonderful things that they want to do, right? And so, like... Confining. Yeah, and I think, and it's not like, the, you know, I don't think either of us in this conversation are trying to bash teachers or, or school leaders, you know, just outright, but it's like, we need, we need guidance and kind of to your point earlier about what does the Department of Education recommend versus mandate. I think there's opportunity to, like, make this a priority and apply pressure to Louisiana Department of Education to, you know, allocate funding for identifying students who have experienced childhood trauma, create professional development pipelines for teachers and leaders, perhaps based off of the ACE Educator Initiative, if that feels like the right plan, um, develop a system to hold schools accountable, to support schools, to make this, to incentivize this. Could this be a part of the school performance score one day? You know, the, the equity index that it, that we have here in New Orleans, right, is, is another way mm -hmm. to look at schools. A big part of my work at Ed Navigator is helping families with school choice. And, you know, the state mandated school performance score does not tell you everything about the school, no. right? <laughs> so, so, you know, perhaps that's a way to make that a priority, to make that a mandate for schools. I think also, you know, at the because we've, we've had some traction at the New Orleans City Council level with the, the acknowledgement of like, this is an issue and we have people that are doing good work and we need to listen to them. The fact that they called for that report is, this, is a good step. 
again, I know a lot has happened since that report published, but like, what's the next step? I think like the city council needs to say, here's what we're going to do with this report. Here's our plan for reviewing it. Here's our deadline. Here's like how we are going to hold ourselves accountable. Here's who we're going to bring into the conversation. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to analyze the ways that we can implement these recommendations because they have like 70 at least recommendations in that report. And I think the city council like owes it uh, to our community to, to review that. And so I think that that could be a step, you know, in the right direction for the, the city council. And I think, you know, we're hearing, you know, you use the term divest right earlier, and we're hearing a lot about, you know, defunding the police. Uh, we have more and more, you know, school communities or districts um, choosing to remove police officers from their campuses. And I, you know, perhaps there's an opportunity to reallocate that funding for a social worker or a counselor or someone who could support the needs of students outside of just the academic sphere and, and kind of pulling away from that punishment, you know, model that we're so used to. And then I think, you know, on the school level, we, especially here in New Orleans, where, the, you know, schools get to make decisions about policies in their, in their charter management organizations, policies in their, within their four walls, you know, they could adopt a, a trauma screener and criteria for how they're gonna use that. Are they gonna, you know, there are calls for universal screening so that we can understand the prevalence of trauma in our student populations. Uh, you know, schools could choose to, to screen everyone. Schools could choose to screen a, you know, a certain set of students. Uh, with that, I think parent engagement and parent involvement and helping, you know, parents understand why this is, you know, priority is really important. And I think, you know, schools have an opportunity to train their staff, right? Like, I, I used to design professional development for my staff, right? I get to like choose the priorities as a leader mm -hmm. in that school. And so I think, I think there's opportunity there for, you know, schools maybe outside of those pilot programs to take some of, to take some of those learnings and some of those ideas and apply them. And, and I think one more thing that you, you know, you kind of made me think about in this conversation, right? Is like within New Orleans specifically, it's so decentralized and there's a lot of autonomy and, but like, the, can the district make this a priority? Is this, a, is this an opportunity to centralize? Is this an opportunity to say, you know what? Like, this needs to be a part of our, the education of our students going forward. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we haven't even spent any time right now or in this conversation talking about COVID and the effects of that. But I think it's like, you know, this is a challenging experience for every single person. But we also know that, you know, there's a lot of inequity and there, the, the, the disparities that already existed in our educational system and our community are just getting exacerbated. Right. And, you know, I think there's like even maybe more reason to like push this to the top of the list because we need to support our students, you know, what emotional, social, emotional well-being, And you got to figure out how to do, do all this stuff virtually. So I think, you know, while we're reimagining schools, can we make this a priority? So I said a lot, no, um, yeah. but I think, I think like, there are people telling us what we can do. There are experts studying this and we need to listen to them and we need to make sure that that work is elevated and that it's visible and that it's fun and not just let it sit there without any action. Right, right. I appreciate you going through a list of like pretty much from top to bottom, not top to bottom, but you know, the entire spectrum. This is what the state can do. This is what LDOE can do. This is what a city can do. This is what a... Um, a local uh, school authorizer can do. This is what a school can do. This is what teachers can do. Because, you know, we know that policy happens both ways, right? It that it often happens from the ground up, right? 
And we know that a lot of initiatives that become policy later started off as a program, a pilot, mm-hmm. or something that happened in a classroom, they expanded it school-wide, et cetera. So policy doesn't just happen because people get together in Baton Rouge, um, you know, every year and make these things. There's a lot of, you know, work happening on the, on the grassroots level um, that is pushed up to policymakers to then be able to codify it in law, essentially. And so that just because we don't have a statewide or a district-wide initiative, it really doesn't let any of the individual um, school or um, academic players off the hook to be trying to figure this out and to use this autonomy in an innovative way. Like if you have the freedom and the flexibility to do something, then do something. (laughs) Do something and share um, what you've learned from that with other people so that they can get on board as well. And to the last piece, like you talked about, you know, NOLA PS or um, potentially centralizing something. And this is the kind of leadership that people are asking for. If something is impacting 80% of a population, I don't necessarily think that decentralization and everybody gets to figure it out in their own way works, right? Um, this is this is definitely something that I think that NOLA PS can be taking leadership on and say, as a district, we care about the mental, social, um, emotional health of our kids. And you're going, and the way that we demonstrate that is by making whoever has a contract with us to do the honor of serving our kids, that they have to have a plan for this. I mean, at the very least, you know, um, that is something that they can do. And I want to see them take leadership on that. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's also, so I kind of alluded to this before, but the, the roadmap for a family to figure out what to do mm-hmm. in our educational system is not always very clear. Not at all. Or straightforward, in, in just in like general terms. And our parents do a great job of figuring it out, right? And they, but they, they, the parents across the board that I work with, across income levels, across types of schools, they always have questions and they ha- often have very similar questions. So it's a confusing system just in general. But then when, when you have a, a, maybe a less typical situation, right? Your student is struggling maybe, you know, more so than his peers. What to then do is often really unclear. And I think the, the families that have the most knowledge and agency and like understanding are parents whose kids do attend schools that make it really clear, like what they offer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, here's what we're about. Here's who we're partnered with. Here's what you do if you have this issue. Right. And some schools are, some schools do that but not, not all the way. So I think, you know, the district could potentially fill this, fill this gap of like, where's the roadmap? Okay. So if you are, you know, attending a K-8 school and you have this set of issues, here's who you can contact. Here's the list of, uh, here's your starting point, right? You still have to do some work. You still have to do some research. You're still going to have to make some calls, but like, here's what the process is. Right. And I think that lack of clarity then causes people to stall it yeah. causes people to get really frustrated. It causes people to lose trust in the system and in their school. Even if there are offerings, they're hard to find. And they're not, you know, they're not, they're not established as like, this is always available. This is how we do things right. for these students. And I think, you know, that's something that I kind of noticed when I, when I moved from Jefferson Parish to Orleans Parish, working in schools now. Not to say Jefferson Parish has everything figured out because they right. don't. Right. But there were at least like, 
there were there were more things that were just established because it was like the district, right? So you, this is the office you go to. And again, whether or not you got the help you needed wasn't always like, you know, that, that kind of depended. But I think that's a place too. I mean, and hopefully that's making sense. But like, that's a place where the district can show some leadership of like, lay out the path so that parents can follow it and get the supports that they need. Because right. that, that I think it's, I think it's underestimated or maybe it's overestimated how much parents know. And it's not for a lack of trying and it's not for a lack of capability. It's like the information is hard to find. Yes. Um, and that's like kind of why I exist. Like that's why my job exists, right? It's like, I'm like a professional, like let me find that information for you. And I don't think that like that, sh that shouldn't have to be a job, right? Like it should just be clear from the district. Should be very, very clear. I wholeheartedly agree with you on that one. Our time is about to wrap up. So I just wanted to know if there were um, any additional uh, resources or, or groups, advocacy groups or actions or any shameless plugs uh, that you wanted to uh, share uh, with the audience before we uh, sign out. I think just like, I wanna reiterate the work of, you know, the. The work of IWES, the work of the Child Youth Planning Board, um, New Orleans Youth Alliance. We also have like, there's like different grant organizations that have created projects around the community. Um, you know, Safe Schools NOLA. I just think like th those, that's what I keep going back to. And and so I think if, if people are, are, are kind of saying, you know, I wanna learn more about that, check out their resources. If you have the like stamina, time, read the Called to Care report. Um, because it, it's gonna, it's gonna offer a pretty comprehensive view of where we're at. And I think it's, it's more than, I guess my other plug is like, our, our school leaders need to be reading this, our, you know, parents need to be reading this, but also like our community, like leader, our business, you know, leaders, our, you know, uh, the manager of Rouse's. Like, I just, I, you know, I just think like people need to know about this, um, so that's kind of my plug. I want to make sure that like their work gets like gets right. the attention that it deserves. Thank you, thank you. And you're also in your work. You are a navigator, so you're an advocate. Um, how can people get connected uh, with N Navigators? Yeah, so we have a website, uh, ednavigator.com. We typically work with our families directly through employer partnerships. So. Couple of the employers that I work with are Latrum, Tulane, the Hyatt, and we offer our service as a benefit of employment. Now, with COVID and school closures, uh, we have also, you know, kind of expanded our our services. Um, we have created a free virtual summer camp called Camp Kinda, and families can pick and choose how they want to use it. It works probably best for third through eighth graders, but we also have an early learner section for K2. So we've like tried to shift our, our, our like kind of widen our net of support. It's open to anybody in New Orleans and beyond. And we are hopefully going to create some content to continue in through the school year. But on our website, even if you're not a member with Ed Navigator, there's tons of resources, a blog, uh, our contact information is there too. So if families have a question, if they like need to know something, if they feel like we could be helpful, reach out to us and we can offer as much support as possible. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. And also a shout out to Whitney Henderson over there mm-hmm. uh, working with you guys uh, doing great work. Um, so thank you very much, Megan, for coming through and explaining all of this to us. For those of you who are listening, please follow up on those resources um, and please get involved with this work on making sure that all children have access to the support and the services that they need to thrive as young people, but then also thrive in their educational experience. Until next time, uh, you know, take care of yourselves. It's still COVID. (laughs) Take care of your mental health, your, not just your physical health, but your mental health, your emotional health, and try to maintain those social connections. And we will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.